Welcome to the IF Global Regulatory Update Podcast. I'm Martin Boer, Senior Director of Regulatory Affairs at the Institute of International Finance in Washington, D.C. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by my good friend, Eris Lieberman, who is a partner at Linklater's in New York, where he is a co-chair of their U.S. Data Solutions Cyber and Privacy Practice. Linklater's is a magic circle, London headquartered law firm with offices across 21 countries. As a former DOJ prosecutor focusing on white-collar and cyber crimes, Eras brings broad legal and operational experience to his current role at Linklater's. He was previously also in-house counsel at Prudential Financial, where Eras built one of the first cybersecurity and privacy legal teams in a Fortune 500 company and worked very closely with us then at the IIF. So it's a great pleasure to have Eris back here today to discuss the growing problem of ransomware, which by some accounts has risen by more than 700% over the past few years, and what organizations should do once they're a victim of such an attack. Eris, it's great to see you, to hear your voice. Welcome to the pod. I hope all is well with you. Martin, thank you very much for having me here. I'm delighted to join uh, Talk Cyber again, like we did when I was at Prudential and all the issues that are around that. We unfortunately have more to talk about now than we even did just a year ago, but it is definitely interesting and and keeps us on our toes. certainly not an area that has been dull or repetitive in any which way. Well said, Ares. Here in the US, we've obviously seen a lot of very high profile ransomware attacks in the last couple months on the Colonial Pipeline, on meat producer JBS, but it's obviously a bigger problem. And we've seen attacks taking place on the Irish health system, on schools, businesses, and food supply chains. So, Eris, how would you characterize the current threat landscape for ransomware? Unfortunately, I would put it at the top. Whatever top rating we provide to that threat landscape is where I would put it. It has been doubling, and it doubled last year, at least doubled in the amount of ransomware payments that we saw from the prior year. Even by the midway point of last year, it had already reached what the whole prior year had seen. And the hackers are emboldened by this. There is just too much money for this to stop, for any one arrest or prosecution or work by any government, even if foreign governments all cooperated, too much money for this to go away. They've realized that some companies have done a better job of having backups. And with those backups, they may not need to pay any ransomware payment if the only issue is the backup. So there has been a real increase in the extortion and the stealing of information that is really sensitive to companies, and then using that as another way of making sure that there's a ransomware payment given out. And in some instances, the hackers have realized that the real reason companies are paying is because of the data that's stolen and the extortion about that data. So we hear a lot about the potential that the shift will be, we don't even need to lock up your computer. We're just going to extort you on this data. So that is a shift that we are seeing. Unfortunately, continue to see an increase in the threat level. And we know from law enforcement that most of these attacks, these ransomware attacks, come from Eastern Europe and also Russia in particular. As we're taping this podcast in early March and in the days following Russia's attack on Ukraine, has there been an uptick in ransomware over the past few weeks? Are you expecting more to come? There is certainly a fear of increased ransomware due to the conflict in Ukraine. And we have indeed talked to clients in Threat Intel and others who have seen more malware being released. We've seen a number of additional ransomware attacks even in the last week, and we expect there will be more. 
One of the, if not the number one group in the ransomware families of attackers is Conti. Conti is a particularly effective group, unfortunately, and a particularly strong group. Over 150 members are estimated to be employees or members of the group. And Conti has literally come out and said in a statement that if anyone tries to stop Russia or interfere with Russia, Conti will attack them. So they've aligned themselves very well. In an extremely interesting twist, a security researcher who was embedded within them, unbeknownst to Conti, is Ukrainian. And that Ukrainian security researcher has dumped into the threat intelligence world a tremendous treasure trove of internal documents from Conti. So I think that they're reacting to that and having to deal with some of the spillover effects. But this is not a group that is easily deterred. And I think that this may embolden them even more. We've seen Anonymous attacking Russia and declaring that they're going to attack, which could mean we'll have a war back from some of the hackers in Russia. So it's a very interesting aspect of the geopolitical landscape affecting even just the criminal underground, not the nation state hacking underground. And as we see as these attacks going back and forth on Russia itself, are there concerns about retaliation on the financial sector in the West? Yeah, we've obviously seen sanctions against Russia and, and the financial services world, and it affects the bottom line, the financial bottom line for Russia. The obvious and easy retribution, therefore, would be against the West's financial services sector. So yes, I think there are concerns for the financial services sector in particular. And we have heard in the past predictions that the next potential financial services crisis could be due to a cyber attack. But on the flip side to that, the financial services sector has known about this potential retribution. They have known about the attacks that could be coming and have invested not hundreds of millions, but billions of dollars, if you combine the efforts of the financial services sector for resiliency, for the ability to respond to attacks, for incident response, and to the credit of the financial services regulators and the Financial Stability Board, that has been a massive focus of the regulators, hand in hand with the financial services sector, sitting around the same table and trying to solve the same question. So if there's an industry that I think has worked through this and has thought through this and has devoted that attention, it's the financial services industry for sure. It doesn't mean that they're going to be immune. Hackers are hackers and they can get through. But I think that we've got some really good plans in place and a real good hand-in-hand efforts by the governments and the financial services sector. Now, knowing that these attacks could be coming, and we've known that a long time, what sorts of steps have firms been taking in preparation for these types of ransomware attacks? Well, of course, you want to have your defenses ready. And so you want all that hundreds of millions or billions that I talked about, you want to have spent those. Now, today, if we're saying there's an increased risk due to the geopolitical situation, you're not going to all of a sudden mature your controls overnight. But there are steps that we've been talking to clients about, we've been seeing. For example, make sure you have good response plans and not just that you have them. Unfortunately, with ransomware, your computer's locked up. So if you haven't printed them out, you don't really have them. So update them and print them out. A lot of companies rely on their backups and that's of course really good, but they're testing their backups one server at a time. They're testing it under a controlled environment. Take a day to test a full restoration for one day to see how that works. Often we're seeing that doesn't work. So companies are doing a real test of their restoration and their resiliency under crisis simulation conditions as opposed to under a controlled easy conditions. I still talk about tabletop exercises, and I still say if the CEO is not in there, then we're missing something. 
if we're talking specifically about ransomware and, and you're talking about a payment anywhere from five to 50 million we've heard of in the last year alone, who's going to approve a ransomware payment of five to 50 million? Probably the CEO, probably with consent of the board or verification by the board. So let's make sure that that CEO is in the tabletop exercise, has really thought through this. We've heard the New York Department of Financial Services say more than once now that the CEO should not be testing their incident response plan for the first time during an incident. And then finally, I would say line up vendors. In the past, we could all say, you know, top of the line companies, middle of the line companies, we have relationships with vendors. They'll come when we have a problem. You don't necessarily have to line up retainers with those incident response vendors. I think that's shifted a little bit. Those vendors have a war for talent and they have a scarcity of resources. And so if you've got a major attack and it's affecting multiple institutions, you need to make sure that somebody has retained resources for you. And so lining up retainers with those resources is more important today than it ever was. And I wasn't counseling that a year ago. And I think that landscape has changed. And I would say, make sure that you know who the right vendors are. The cyber world is replete with companies saying that they're experts in this field. Not every company that says that they're expert and is trying to capitalize on cyber is a cyber expert. So identify who really is and get them ready. And then, of course, to the extent there's time, and, and hopefully there is, continue to work on cyber maturity. Those are all great points. And there's definitely been a lot more focus on the resilience of third parties and vendors and your supply chain. Make sure that you have all the risks in hand that you're exposed to, also to your counterparties. One of the things that makes ransomware interesting is that there's this huge incentive for cyber criminals because it's highly lucrative. And so cyber gangs, as you also mentioned, are earning hundreds of millions of dollars and victims are usually paying to get access back. So as a former prosecutor, what is the best way to stop these criminals in what is becoming an increasingly professionalized business? The best way at the end of the day is still to figure out how to arrest them and bring them to justice. That's not such an easy task, especially when some of them are hiding in countries that don't extradite, especially don't extradite their own citizens. And as a matter of fact, both of the countries in the current conflict, Russia and Ukraine, don't extradite cyber hackers. That creates a real problem when there's so many intelligent hackers in countries like that and they're hacking. Then the ideal way is to stop what incentivizes them and the money incentivizes them. I know there has been a ton of discussion about whether we should forbid ransomware payments or put some limitation on that. I think that that is a beautiful thought in theory. I think it is very difficult in practice, especially when they hit the hospitals, as you pointed out, even the financial services sector, right? You know, on the one hand, you say, wow, these are rich organizations. On the other hand, well, what if it's crippling the ability of somebody to get money to pay for daily needs, to pay their checks, to pay their resources? And limiting that, it can have real life consequences. So it's easy to say, let's stop that. I think other options are doing better and putting some more regulation around crypto payments could be one way and not tracking. The world of crypto has made it much easier for the criminals to get the money. In the past, they would need to use money mule networks. They would need to sell the credit card information that they had in order to profit from their credit card breaches. Now it's an instant transfer of money and that makes it just too easy. These are elements to do. Ultimately, for companies, work with law enforcement to get the ball rolling. Yeah, those are really good points. I wanted to combine what you said about cryptocurrencies with the fact that 
during a ransomware attack, it's victims paying their attackers, which is unusual, right? Compared to other cyber crimes where the victim's money is just taken from them, but now they're making payments. And it's conducted through cryptocurrencies, which, as you say, are harder to trace often, or they get put through uh, Bitcoin mixtures and things like that. So there's also a risk that you as a victim are paying cyber adversaries who might be on sanctions lists or who you're not supposed to be paying. And so how do you advise your clients about this aspect of making payments to restore access to their systems when you don't always know who your counterparty is? Yeah, that's a very sensitive topic. In the United States, FinCEN and OFAC have put out some really helpful guidance. And that guidance has talked about doing due diligence before you make a payment. Some of the ransomware negotiation vendors, and that's a new thing, right, in the last few years, that concept, the ransomware negotiation vendor, they do a fantastic job of threat intelligence so that when you say, okay, I need to pay an actor, they say, well, that actor looks like, we'll use Conti because we talked about them earlier, looks like Conti. Conti's not known in the past, at least, to have been affiliated with any entity on the sanctions list, and therefore we can pay them without fear that that is paying someone on the SDN list. And other countries have similar lists. Of course, even the entities that are on those lists are trying to disguise that because they want to get paid. And so if you're a group affiliated with North Korea or Iran, you're going to try and disguise that. It's a strict liability standard in the United States. That's an interesting concept under FinCEN and OFAC. It'd be great if there was a way for victims to report the ransomware attack, to report that they are under that attack and are in a position where they have to pay, and to have some sort of clearance mechanism through OFAC or FinCEN. That doesn't exist today. Maybe we'll see that down the road. But that due diligence program is critical. The guidance by OFAC has said that if you do end up tripping over this and you do end up paying an entity on the sanctions list, If you've reported it to law enforcement, worked with the Department of Treasury, have a sanctions compliance program in place, did your due diligence, these are all going to factor very heavily as to whether there's an enforcement action and what the extent of that enforcement action is against you. And so companies are doing a really good job of following that advice. Yeah, you mentioned OFAC, and there's also FATF, and ransomware has also been a big focus of the Biden administration and law enforcement authorities, also internationally. How do you view their overall response so far? And what further can be done to push back harder against these adversaries? Look, I give a lot of credit to the administration right now. Ann Newberger in the White House came out with what we call the Newberger Letter. Great resource for companies to make sure they're thinking about this. I think the financial services industry certainly thought about a lot that was in there, but other industries may not have. And so it's a really great letter open letter saying, we, the government, are doing what we can, but we've got to have private industry enter basic controls, report this, work together with us, and it's a joint effort. Jen Easterly at CISA, she came, of course, from the financial services sector. She is doing a tremendous job with the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Administration to get the word out about ransomware and how to stop it. And they have this stopransomware.gov, great website and resource for companies. So I think they're doing a tremendous job on this. You asked, though, internationally, and I think when we talk about working with law enforcement, and I hate to sound like the American that says we're doing a great in America, but I think American law enforcement, in particular the FBI and the U.S. Secret Service, has really learned and done a tremendous job of working with victims, treating them like victims, and keeping the attacks confidential. 
Whereas I hear in the rest of the world that there are a lot of fears that if I report this to law enforcement, they're not going to give me any helpful information. And instead, it's going to be leaked to an enforcement arm or to the press. And that's not so ideal. And therefore, it discourages working with international law enforcement. I think that that is an area that needs to get better. On the other hand, I do know that there's tremendous cooperation among international law enforcement and U.S. law enforcement to share information about both the ransomware actors and the tools that they're using. Uh, the FBI and the Secret Service, for example, have cyber agents stationed in different parts of the world specifically to work this international aspect of ransomware and cybercrime. And I think they're making good progress. We saw some botnet takedowns in the past. They work together with companies like Microsoft who've done a great job. So I think there's a lot of good hand in hand. There's always room for a little more maturity. No, well said. And I do think that Europol works well also in Europe with the US and with other jurisdictions in areas like information sharing and cyber incident reporting and trying to be more coordinated. So hopefully we'll see more there. We have a few more minutes, Eric. So I wanted to just ask, since you advise clients and we're in-house counsel, what are some effective practices that you think are particularly pertinent for organizations to protect themselves against ransomware and what to do if they are attacked? Can you share some of us? I'll go back to the tabletop exercises because I think that when you get together and you do a simulation, and I just did one with my law class and I put them through this to show them how do you work through this simulation. It lets you understand what the issues are and also helps you coordinate. At the end of the day, a cyber attack, in particular a ransomware attack, is a crisis. And it requires somebody in charge of the team, but then it requires really good coordination and collaboration across different teams. Ransomware affecting a big company is going to obviously involve your information security team and then your IT team to restore systems. But it also immediately is going to have a comms issue. So your communications, your PR team needs to know. You're going to need to talk to regulators. So your regulatory team needs to be right there in the middle of it. Also, your employees may be a little afraid of what's going on, not know. They may go and disclose it before you're ready to disclose it. So HR is a really important player. And I just left out the actual business and the business team that is important. That coordination, which seems like, of course, they'd all coordinate, too often that loses some of the cohesiveness. Different parts aren't talking to each other. And so how you work that together and how you're ready together will affect your response. I've sung the praises of regulators because they're working very well with the industry now to prepare for this. And I think that regulators have matured in the sense that just because you've had a ransomware attack, no longer means you're going to have an enforcement action. But if you mess up your response and you have not prepared for that response and you bungle that, regulators do have an expectation that that has had a more maturity and they have had enforcement actions about that. That's where companies can keep working and practicing. So that's where I talk about practicing that and making sure it's cohesive and making sure that there is a person, a single person who's going to be in charge of this instead of losing that in the crisis response. And also working close with law enforcement authorities. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Eris, for sharing your insights. I very much enjoyed our conversation, and I look forward to seeing you again in New York or Washington, D.C. or somewhere else when things normalize. Thank you. We thank everyone for listening to this podcast and hope you all stay safe and healthy. Please consider subscribing to the IIF Global Regulatory Update on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.